0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 29th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show.
1: Mr Speaker, I fear we
2: are
0: reaching the limits of this process in this house. This house... Today was supposed to have been the day, but it isn't. Is Brexit ever going to happen? My guests, Venetia Rainey, Paige Reynolds, and Augustin Machilari, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the prospect of Ukraine being led by a comedian well, a professional comedian the pangs of conscience afflicting Western museums about the origins of their exhibits and 20 years of the Matrix. How much does this film have to answer for? That's all to come on the Dory House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocles, Paige Reynolds, Augustine Machilari, and Venetia Rainey. Uh, Welcome all to the programme and happy Independence Day, or perhaps I should say, with deference to our many Leave voting listeners, happy Dependence Day, which is to say that today, March 29th, is the day that the United Kingdom was supposed to be leaving the European Union, round about five hours from now, in fact. But it is not. Following the failure of Parliament to agree on what manner of Brexit they're in favour of and following, within the last few hours, the third choice shooting down of Prime Minister Theresa May's withdrawal agreement in the House of Commons. The clock has been reset. Brexit is allegedly now due to occur on April 12th, though at this point betting on that happening, or on what will happen between now and then, would seem an enterprise for the foolhardy. Nevertheless, let's do exactly that. Uh, Venetia, what? briefly, if you will, uh, summarise what are the available options at this point, and frankly I think you can probably get away with saying anything at all that pops into your head, because absolutely nobody knows at this point what's going on or what's going to happen.
2: Well, the options are that we go to the zoo together. <laughs> I,
0: mean. I, I like. I like, the, I like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my tick next to that Okay, okay. we're going to the zoo what so going, else is there we're going there? to the
2: monkey section of the zoo and we're just going to see what suggestions they have now, so on Monday there are going to be more indicative votes to see if the House of Commons can find a majority for a slimmed down selection of the options that they were voting on this week so I, I don't know what exactly the options are table but I think we could still revoke Article 50 um, we could have another referendum we could have a closer to, cu- closer to the European customs set up sort of Norway plus um and, yeah, well, if something along those lines gets voted up, then...
0: Or or we, or we can go to the zoo. Um, Augustine, there are reports uh, in the last hour or so that Theresa May, brilliant... It's it's becoming almost impressive, is going to try and get her withdrawal agreement up again on Monday. This will be attempt for... Attempt number four, possibly this time in a runoff against whatever came out came out on top of the indicative vote on Wednesday, or what will come out on top of another indic. Again, I'm both baffled and kind of past caring. But but how ridiculous would it be if she
3: if she tried to get this thing up to the gate again? She's tenacious, isn't she? I, I, Is I, one way of putting it. I, I think it would be pretty ridiculous, personally. <laughs> but I'm not. Um, I'm not the, the prime minister. Well, uh, again, anything could happen. Pardon. The indicative votes, do they not kind of um, alter possibly the, some of the terms of the Brexit agreement? That no, the, the, that the Brexit agreement is, so is, they is, set, in is set in stone. That has, has to be renegotiated with the re-
0: European re- Union, who've already said repeatedly they're not going to renegotiate I it. I
3: mean, one has to think that some sort of grand narrative that we've not been clued into. Can she... We're doing the matrix later, Augustine. Okay. <laughs> just, <laughs> just be patient. You need to take the red pill man. <laughs> um Paige,
0: um also, hilariously, in in the last few minutes, the the DUP, who, despite myself, I'm kind of starting to warm to. This is the democratic. Oh,
1: nice. <laughs> That's a sign of the times, isn't it? This is
0: this is the Democratic Unionist Party, who who famously Theresa May bunged a billion quid uh, to keep on board and prop her government up. Uh, Nigel Dodds uh, of the DUP has, in the last few minutes, quite cheerfully admitted that he's probably happier, frankly, if it's a choice between <laughs> leaving the union and leaving the EU. He just rather that Northern Ireland just stayed in the EU. It was all pretty all right as it was. Everyone seemed pretty happy. You joking? No, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really not. Uh, so that that was a billion quid well spent on Theresa May's part. Uh, is that he is clearly starting to brace himself for the prospect of another election, and he doesn't want the DUP to get thumped by Northern Irish voters who were broadly in favour of remaining. Um, is another election actually going to sort anything out?
1: Um, I mean that's the million dollar question, isn't it's, it really? It's one of many one million, of many dollar, many million dollar, questions. dollar questions that we've all trying to be uh, all one tried to discuss. One yeah exactly that's <laughs> how much our currency will be worth. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't I don't necessarily think that I think there is a complete absence of of political leadership. There's also an absence of unity within the parties that would be going for that leadership, so that's a little worrying, I think, uh, initially. And I mean, I think I think what I loved from this week, sort of following all of it, was um, when uh, they were voting on all these different versions of Brexit on Wednesday, and the Guardian's uh, front page on Thursday was just no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 and I think that's just how we're all feeling as well about about any of the options. I think what the only thing that is well, fingers crossed, clear is I do think that. I personally believe that the the, the option that might happen is that we just get a massive big extension on this whole thing from the EU. Because what happens now, essentially, is that um, if we don't agree on a direction of sorts, then we crash out on the 12th of April. But, I mean... Is it really in anyone's interest? Is it in the EU's interest for that to happen? I don't
0: know. Uh, I I will get us off this subject because we will doubtless have (laughs) ample opportunity to discuss it further. Uh, Up until today, I have at this point in Midori Houses been asking our guests on March 29th whether they thought uh, the UK would be in or out of the EU. We now have an answer to that question. So I do just want to whip around the table, which I will do counterclockwise, starting with you, Paige, uh, just basically and answer briefly Basically, if you will, Brexit. Basically, is it going to happen or not?
1: Um, no, I don't think it will happen. I have, I have faith in something.
0: Okay, Venetia.
1: I'm a Remain voter, but I think it's going to happen. I think we're heading for some
2: sort of Norway solution.
0: And Augustine?
3: Yeah, it's it's on. What Brexit? Brexit's <laughs> on or not Brexit is on? I reckon Brexit's on. Okay. Yeah, I you, think sound, you sound quite excited. Yeah, well, I've got an Italian passport. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying the view.
0: I've got an Australian one, so i totally win. Um, Anyway, let's move on uh, in search of a country whose politics are presently even more screwed up than the United Kingdom's. Uh, We can call this search off at Ukraine because whatever other problems the UK has, at least it isn't partially occupied by Russia, though that said, the weekend is young. Ukraine votes in a presidential election on Sunday, the likeliest winner of which seems set to be a professional buffoon who has commanded popular affection by pretending to be a comically inept politician on television. And it's obviously completely unimaginable that any such personage could become so much as foreign secretary in this country, never mind thought of as a prime minister in waiting. Um, Page, uh, first of all, this table's resident Ukraine boffin. Um, <laughs> uh, who is uh, Volodymyr Zelensky? And I, I can tell that you're the resident Ukraine boffin because it says here in my script in brackets, ask Page.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I've definitely got to sound like I'm uh, up on my stuff now.
0: No pressure.
1: No, luckily I have been following this with with some interest. And uh, as your introduction perhaps uh, indicated, this has been a quite crazy race uh, for for Ukraine. Um, Volodymyr Zelensky, who uh, is likely to uh, win a sort of majority in the first round elections on Sunday, is an actor and a comedian. Um, He plays a fictitious President uh, in a um, prominent Ukrainian sitcom called *Servant of the People*. Um, his character in in this sitcom is very much a president who's a a man of the people. He used to be a teacher, and then he goes on about the elite. He goes on about being you know anti-corruption, and he and he comes to power um, and. I think he probably got a taste of oh this is quite this is this is quite nice this is what Ukraine needs so it has now decided to run for office seemingly. Um, what's this, really this is
0: basically your scenario in which Martin Sheen off the West Wing actually runs for president, isn't it? it?
1: Perhaps, yeah. But I think what's what's fascinating about Zelensky is is I think you've had a lot of these um, leaders who have sort of uh, come from the media or TV, obviously Trump, an, an obvious example, but. Zelensky's not only using his sort of media clout, he's he's actually campaigning on the basis of what his character represents, which is a very weird kind of conundrum um, and he hasn't, when you sort of dig a bit deeper, he doesn't really have a, a political, uh, a specific political agenda. Um, he hasn't even been running actual campaign rallies. He's been, just been putting on free concerts across Ukraine. Um, but he is obviously appealing to the youth. He's a fee- appealing to a really disaffected population. Um, they're not happy with Poroshenko. Um, it'll be interesting if it's Poroshenko and Zelensky in the second round uh, because a lot of people see this initial vote for Zelensky as more of a protest vote. More of a, we're not happy with what's going on and this is what, you know, this is how we're expressing it. So whether the people sort of turn back a little bit. Um, One last interesting point about Zelensky, I mean there's many, but an interesting point is that I think a lot of people um, see him as this kind of clean slate. Poroshenko and then the other sort of forerunner, Yulia Tymoshenko, who's a former PM, both have a lot of corruption um, allegations uh, uh, towards them. um, And people see Zelensky as not having this, but actually the TV channel which owns um, Zelensky's show is run by a really controversial oligarch, um, Kolomoisky, um, who uh, has been in lots of shady waters and people see this as a a connection of perhaps some political significance as well. So.
0: See, Augustine, I don't even know where to start with the whole what could possibly go wrong where where this story is concerned. But is he, Zelensky's campaign, an apparent imminent success? Is this reflective of... a a wider problem, uh, one I think probably most sensationally illustrated so far by the election to the US presidency of Donald Trump, um, and possibly it even explains Brexit, it certainly explains Boris Johnson, uh, that people have got to a point where they want and indeed expect their politics to be entertaining. They're not interested in as much as that perhaps they once were in actual, you know, policies and ideas and people fixing things and building things and getting
3: stuff done they want to be amused yes and i think this is a cultural problem i think that entertainment has infected politics uh maybe we could look at the talent show as an example x factor people turn it on they see someone who they like the sound of their voice they also like their character they like the cut of their jib they like a package which represents you know a set of admirable qualities in an entertainer but which has absolutely no bearing on uh, qualities that mark someone out as a strong leader of a country and yet over the past sort of 20 or 30 years we've seen this shift into that kind of arena. You mentioned Trump uh, who invented himself really on The Apprentice as far as I understand it. Before that he was widely derided as a kind of tabloid buffoon until he was riding He's down still his golden... pretty widely derided as a tabloid <laughs> buffoon, yeah. in what, fairness. What about his base? You know, there's, there's a lot of people who don't think that.
0: Uh, no, well, clearly, clearly there's not. Um, Venetia, the trouble is that there is a... There's always going to be an overlap, isn't there? Because the. It's very hard to imagine that you can be a successful political leader without being at some... I'm trying to think of another word for entertainer. But you do need to be a communicator. You need to be able to engage an audience. You need to be able to uh, get people to go along with what you're saying. There's a, there, there's a certain part of the skill set in common, isn't there? Have we just misplaced the balance?
2: Um I'm not sure. I mean we do want to be we do want to be entertained. But you know, there's there's something to be said for solid, more technocratic y style leaders like we see in perhaps Germany or the Netherlands. But I think there's also a huge element of what Paige touched on, which is that protest vote. People Often people know what they don't want, but are less able to vote for what they do want. Maybe it's not represented. Maybe they're not completely clear on it themselves. But we've seen that in Brexit. We've seen that in the surge of populist parties across Europe. We've seen it in America, obviously. I think now maybe we're seeing it in Ukraine. When people are against the establishment and just have an overwhelming sense that the status quo is not serving them, they will vote for that candidate that is something completely different, even if it doesn't particularly align with all of their values.
0: This is all a bit, I don't like the curtain, so I'm going to burn my house down though isn't it?
2: Yes it is and we've seen where (laughs) perhaps I I don't want to say that for all leave voters but I think that sense of dissatisfaction with what's going on can be very dangerous to unleash.
3: I was just going to say there Andrew that I think what you were reaching for is is the idea of charisma Um, people confuse charisma uh, which is a necessary quality in leadership with uh, star quality which is a necessary quality in uh, an entertainer to pick up on what Venetia was just saying though, about this desire to effect change People are quite stuck, aren't they? Because either they have the change the curtain by burning the house down option or they have a new, for example, in the UK, a new centrist party, Change UK, which nominally wants to change British politics by maintaining the status quo of the past 25 years of British politics, bar this kind of aberration that's happened in the 2010s i think that people see these entertainers who are offering them an alternative and who are charismatic especially in an age of profoundly uncharismatic leadership look at may even hillary clinton Um, and they latch on to their promises and they have positive associations with them in other spheres of their lives which maybe have undue influence because they're watching too much tv not to sound like an old dad Uh, and they and they go for it but but
0: that was that right there was i think i'm right in remembering it was the the appalling but not imperceptive Roger Stone who said this about the, you know, that Trump could not have become president of the United States without The Apprentice, that he'd been the, the host of this, this big hit program and that millions of Americans had just come to associate him as this person who sat in a big chair and made decisions. Um, I, th- I think, if I remember rightly, the same interview with Roger Stone, he said something to the effect of don't underestimate the number of American voters who literally don't even know who Hillary Clinton is. Mm. Uh, but but they, they, they recognized this
3: guy who was on TV and thought he must be clever, he has his own show. Which is why I think it's a cultural problem as much as it's a kind of political problem. There's nothing in culture to delineate high from low to tell people that, you know, this that you're seeing is not of quality. There's no depth to it. Uh, Do you see what I mean? There's no kind of, there's, there's very little criticality.
0: Is, is it possible, and I will put this back to you, Paige, that we <laughs> might be due a backlash, that an age of the, the boring but competent centrist technocrat may be about to dawn? I'd be pretty excited by that, but I may be in a minority.
1: Perhaps. I mean you know, like like uh, Venetia was saying, we do see more of those leaders uh, uh, having some, some success in the sort of more Germanic and Nordic nations. I think a leader, though, who I would maybe point out um, at the moment is Jacinda Ardern in, in New Zealand. She Indeed. seems like A politician who um isn't has charisma is actually is really really in touch with the people um and she sort of i feel like she seems like the little hope perhaps that we need that there's not going to be a backlash into really boring wanting really boring politicians but actually just finding the right ones who know what they're talking about and who can be people before their caricatures or you know just politicians for being a politician's sake.
0: Unfortunately, I suspect the United Kingdom is far, far too far away for New Zealand to be able to invade. Uh, but on that <laughs> w- that wistful thought, we will take <laughs> a short break. Uh, you're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Venetia Rainey, Augustin Machalari, and Paige Reynolds. Coming up next, Easter Island get some of its stuff back. What's the secret to a happy life? Join us in June in Madrid for Monocle's 5th annual Quality of Life Conference to find out. We'll be asking the important questions and proffering a few unexpected answers on everything from the future of our cities to deft design, from hospitality to the finer things in life. You'll find counsel from the food players laying the table for success, the entrepreneurs we're backing, and plenty of lessons, scoops and insights gleaned in the Spanish capital and beyond. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference takes place in Madrid from the 27th to the 29th of June. Head to conference.monocle.com now to watch the film from last year's event and buy tickets at a special early bird price. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You are back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Melister with me are Paige Reynolds, Venetia Rainey and Augustine Maccellari. Now, sitting here in mara as we are, we are in walking distance of some of the world's greatest museums, which means one might argue that we are within walking distance of some of the world's most bountiful lockups of stolen goods. There has been, in recent years, a gathering global momentum for artefacts removed from their places of manufacture to be returned Whence they came. The latest such institution to acquiesce is Norway's Kontiki Museum, which has agreed to return to Chile, specifically Easter Island, much of the loot acquired by the raft born Norwegian explorer Tor Heyerdahl on his trip to Easter Island in 1956. Um, Augustine, first of all, where are we on this? Because there there is obviously at the end of this, uh, the question, where do you stop? If every museum in the world gives everything back that it acquired from somewhere else in possibly dubious circumstances, um, I mean, that's going to be good news for parcel delivery firms, but not great news for the
3: world's museum goers. Well, not good news for the world's museums, perhaps. I mean, the world's museum goers will be perfectly happy to go and see the treasures of their country in their own countries instead of having to trek over to London to see them uh, as is the case for many Greeks i think that there's you know if if one is completely honest with oneself there is no moral or ethical case that can be made for keeping artifacts if their safety and security is guaranteed in the country that's requesting their repatriation. I literally cannot see an argument What,
0: what if that. What if they were acquired legitimately? What is legitimate Well, I don't know. If, if, if they were actual gifts or money-changed hands. Oh, yeah, or...
3: but who's asking for gifts back?
0: Well, I don't know. This is the question about in, in what... Is it is it always dictated by the circumstances in which the artefacts were acquired? I would say so, yeah. Uh, Venetia, you have spent a great deal of time in one of the places in which this comes up a lot uh, which is Greece and its ongoing beef specifically with the British Museum about what the British Museum calls the Elgin marbles but I'm pretty sure the Greeks call something else entirely something probably more Greek um, wh- wh- Why is that a big thing in Greece? And is it a big thing in Greece? Is it actually a big thing or is it something that politicians know they can use to profitable effect when they need to?
2: I think it's both of those things, Um, but it is a big thing. And it's something, Greece has a very long history and they're very proud of their classical heritage and with good reason. Indeed Um, so. And they built, they spent a lot of money building a whole new museum for the Acropolis where they put all of the statues and everything from the Parthenon in. And they very politically left these huge gaps for where (laughs) the stuff in the British Museum will eventually go. And their argument, since I think that museum was completed quite recently in the last couple of years or so and their argument is we have a fantastic museum these things will be safe there is no reason like augustine said for you to not return them to him and it it is a big deal you do think so the specific circumstances for those i think were that they were taken while greece was under ottoman rule and they were sort of smuggled across the border well, firstly, it's smuggled. Who knows? The borders were a bit different back then. But also, Greece was occupied by Ottomans. So I don't know how you decide whether it's legitimate or not. But I think it's fair for Greece to argue that we can take care of them. And they're clearly originally from here. They make more sense for museum goers to see them in their original space, along with the rest of the set of the statues.
0: Paige, is there anything to the argument, do you think? And this does get floated uh, quite a lot, especially in defense of the British Museum, that if, <coughs> if a given object, and not necessarily the Olgan marbles, just say a given object, is in the British Museum, it's likely to be seen by more people than it might be in quite a lot of other places. This being one of the most visited cities on earth, and the British Museum being one of the most visited attractions therein.
1: Yes, I think that definitely is is an argument, um, but I guess it depends what what. What you think the value of that object is, is, is or the purpose of that object is, is the purpose of that object to be seen by the most amount of people possible all the time, or is the purpose of that object to be around the people to which it, it means the most to? Okay. Do you know what I mean? And I think particularly when you look at perhaps um, indigenous cultures, um, a lot of the time, I think we have the idea that because this artifact came from however many hundreds of years ago it's like it should be in a museum in some glass but for a lot of these indigenous cultures these uh, these objects are still vital they're still you know appreciated within the community they're, they're not going to put them in a stuffy box do you know what I mean I, I, I think we've got to each Artifact, I think, has to be very much individually kind of measured or weighed up in that sense.
2: There's also the financial aspect to it. Who is profiting from people seeing these items? Well, England, well, it's very nice for us to be profiting off all these things that were taken from all over the world during our colonial period. But is it really fair for that to continue happening
0: do you think it might bring the argument into a certain amount of sharp relief in this country if 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 a few foreign countries came over here and nicked some stuff and took it home and put it in their museums to see how you guys liked it?
3: I think that's a good shot. They could pinch Stonehenge, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, that uh, would be tricky. I'd like with to the rebuilds, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Discreetly replace it with Jeremy Deller's inflatable version on the sly and whisk it off to. Okay. Well, on that happy thought, uh, <laughs> we we will move along
0: uh, and finally tonight. Uh, 2019 Turns out to be quite the red letter year for fans of tedious and overrated science fiction epics. This year is both the 20th anniversary of The Matrix and the year in which The Blade Runner. The Blade Runner. The year in which Blade Runner is set. It is almost certain that theme parties will be held at which these two films will be shown back to back, in between conversation dominated by complaint that no girls have shown up. Um, does 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 anybody here want to make a case for either of these dreadful films? I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> Looking okay, at Augustine,
3: you, You've been to one of these parties, <laughs> Let me you? just preface this by saying that I do have a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> d- d- but she just goes to another school, right? And that's why we haven't, <laughs> <laughs> that's why we haven't uh, met her. Yes, quite right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're belters. I, Blade Runner is... Um, is a little bit more boring than the matrix isn't it i really <laughs> it is, the other i've con- officially
2: fallen asleep twice trying to watch that movie as <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: i thought you were about to say during this show
3: yeah <laughs> i'm not about to pipe up in favor but like i'm sure it's great and it looks cool sort of futuristic la as tokyo or hong kong vision but it is it is pretty tedious um the matrix though is really great and far out. Come on. And has had such an incredibly large cultural impact. Well, yes, and
0: I would argue that aside from being a bad film in and of itself, its cultural impact has also been entirely noxious because, (laughs) (laughs) is it not true, Venetia, uh, that The Matrix is at least partially responsible for every foil-hatted dullard on the internet uh, who thinks that the world is secretly run by shape-shifting lizards in a parallel dimension who are surreptitiously Morgan (laughs) fiddling with his mortgage interest (laughs) David Icke was banging his drum way before The Matrix came out I know, but if if David Icke is the the Elvis of this analogy, then The Matrix is is the Beatles, I haven't had time to work on that that may not stand much scrutiny Venetia, does The Matrix have a case to answer here? <laughs>
2: um, I mean I think it's just tapping into something that people love to think about anyway. Is this all really real? What if it wasn't? Um so I think it's just tapping into something that's always existed in humans ever questioning minds. Um
1: I, I like the movie personally.
0: Really? Paige, I understand again, <laughs> reading my script here that you, 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 you have views on the tiny sunglasses.
1: <laughs> this this is what we were talking about. If we're talking about the cultural impact of the Matrix. I think the biggest cultural impact of the Matrix might be 2018's, what some might deem 2018's biggest trend, which was tiny sunglasses. Was it?
0: I missed this. It was not Un- South unsurprising, London, mate.
1: Unsurprising. Unsurprising, <laughs> actually. <laughs> No, honestly, um, Kanye West sort of brought these back. In fact, he sent, he sent an email to Kim and said, you cannot wear big glasses anymore. It's all about tiny little sunglasses. And apparently he sent her loads and loads of images, including images of Neo from The Matrix. And thus we have tiny little sunglasses everywhere. Yes, I did try and buy a pair. Yes, I have a very big face. Yes, I didn't look very good. But bang on trend.
3: Um, if you have a big face, surely all sunglasses look quite small on you.
1: They do. And the tiny ones, pff, I tell you,
3: not <laughs> um, look. I have to just say right now that you are categorically wrong when you say that uh, the the biggest cultural (laughs) impact of The Matrix was tiny sunglasses. The visual language of the film has informed not just science fiction films, but also action films since all this revolutionary stuff with the slow motion, the bullet time, is really influential. But perhaps most... And, just for the record, Elon Musk himself, the, the billionaire lunatic of our age... Has picked up on these kind of Cartesian ideas uh, that it that it deals in to say that we're living in a computer simulation, and if we read the papers, so, as we so discuss, the Matrix we could be... is
0: also to blame for Elon Musk. <laughs>
3: well, perhaps, but I think if we're talking about noxiousness, it's the red pill uh, metaphor that, that 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 takes the biscuit, and that's maybe where its uh, contemporary cultural relevance is is, is most felt. Uh, this idea that the alt-right, who are the kind of neo-fascist movement uh, sweeping across America and overseas um, very dangerously, as we saw in Christchurch, described their red pill experience as the moment when they kind of woke up to the uh, emptiness of liberal values and saw the world for how it truly is, which in their imagining is this kind of hateful hellscape peopled (laughs) with all this awful equality and... (laughs) (laughs) unpleasant you know ethnic harmony um and 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 so and they call it the red pill and that and that just shows you what a potent sort of metaphor it is so just as a final thought on this because we have about 30 seconds left um page i'll ask you
0: will you be celebrating the 20th anniversary of the matrix by wearing very small sunglasses or, or, or or not
1: yep I've I've cleaned my favourite pair (laughs) and um, I'll I'll send you a pic so you can see how how much they don't suit me I
0: I, I look forward to that Venetia, will you be hosting any Matrix themed parties during 2019?
1: No, but I might finally get round to
2: watching the third one
0: the sequels are all terrible. Oh there, yeah, Augustin. big time. Really <laughs> <boring>. <laughs> then I won't, then I
2: won't. Scrap okay, my plans for the weekend.
0: On, on that note of harmony, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Venetia Rainey, Paige Reynolds and Augustine Machilari. thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. There's more on the day's big stories on The Daily at 2200 with Emma Nelson. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. Fellow Europeans, have a great weekend. I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks for listening.